Heavenly Father, many of us are scared of silence. We find an awkwardness in it. We find it strange because the world that we live in is anything but silent. And we are encouraged uh, to speed up our lives. And we oftentimes do it. And God create very little margin, very little room. God, I thank you for the power of the story of the scriptures and the whole Bible. I pray that as we listen today, God, that we would be reminded of the big story. And that we would see, Lord, that we are just small little parts of it. And that, God, you are using all things for your good and for your glory. And God, may we understand that. May we surrender and might we give ourselves over to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start by asking you a question today. What is your favorite story? Some of you can maybe come up with it immediately. You're like, my favorite story is Frozen. My favorite story is Cinderella. My favorite story is any of these different stories. All of us probably have some of our very favorite stories. For some of us, it might be a story that is from 30, 40 years ago, maybe even longer. Uh, Maybe we have some Shakespeare fans in the room. They like reading some of that old English. And so there's a Shakespeare play that you're like, I really, really like that. More recently, our world has gotten really, really excited about Harry Potter again because J.K. Rowling came out and wrote a new book or a script to a play. And so people are getting really, really excited for that. Uh, I actually saw on the news yesterday that there's in Winnipeg, there's a huge festival, a huge Harry Potter festival, and people are dressing up as wizards and all of these different things. And so some of us, this, this story that we love might be reawakened inside of us. One of my favorite stories is Batman. And some of you are like, what do you mean Batman? Now, every single year that I go on vacation, I do one of the most nerdy things that I've ever admitted to doing, and I go to the Dragon Store in downtown Guelph in the uh, Quebec Street Mall there, and I don't call it a comic book because that's really nerdy. I call it a graphic novel. And what a graphic novel is is really a whole slew of comic books put into one novel. And every single year, I, I go to the Dragon, and I go up to the desk because these people are brilliant when it comes to graphic novels, and I say, listen, I've waited all year long. I have one year that I splurge on one graphic novel. Tell me which Batman graphic novel I need to read this year. And so they take me over to the, you would not believe how many graphic novels are in there. There are so many. If you don't know the culture, just go in there sometime. You have to experience it. And I go in there and they take me over to the section and it is just shelf upon shelf upon shelf of graphic novels. And the people in there are are geniuses when it comes to this stuff. And they start pulling different ones off the shelf and they start comparing them to other ones and they're speaking in a language I don't understand. And I'm just, I just say to them, listen, there's this one that I read called The Black Mirror. It's kind of a self-contained graphic novel. Some of you maybe don't know what that means. Self-contained is one story within the story. There's actually many different takes of different writers on the Batman story, but it's all kind of, there can be different self-contained stories. And so I go in and I say, I want one self-contained Batman story. And the problem is, is that a lot of them are based upon multiple graphic novels and multiple storylines. And so I say, no, I just want one single story. And then, so this week I picked up the one, it's called The Long Halloween. And I read through it this week and, and really, really enjoyed it. Now, why I like Batman, I couldn't really tell you why I specifically like Batman, but I think I like the character of Bruce Wayne because in many ways, I don't think I feel like I relate. Like, I'm not a billionaire uh, who then uh, at nighttime fights crime, but I, I think I relate to the internal battle and the internal struggle that Batman has with himself and that he's kind of caught between a couple of different identities sometimes. 
And I think many of us can probably really relate in that way as well, that we have the lives that we live and we have the people that we're desiring to be or the people that we believe we've called to be, but then so often we can struggle in our day-to-day lives to actually live that way based upon the pressures that come at us from every which direction. And so for me, Batman is one of my favorite stories. You would have maybe a different one. One of my other favorite stories, as I've told you before, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, one of my all-time favorite stories. And so all of us probably have some stories that we really, really enjoy, that we love to read, and it doesn't matter how many times we read them, we'll continue to read them over and over again. Now, the second question I want to ask you is, what makes a good story? So let's solicit some answers here. This is you raising your hand. I'll point at you. What makes a really, really good story? What makes a story really, really compelling? What do you like about good stories? Suspense. Yes. What else? Yes. Happy endings. Yes. Yeah. You kind of feel a little bit weird when it doesn't end that way. Yes. Characters, yes, we get drawn, we get taken into a character, a specific character that we really, really enjoy, maybe feel like we can relate to. How about others? Or some other things? Yes. A hero. So another character, right? Somebody that kind of really draws our attention in. What else? Yes. A funny ending. You like the funny stuff. Very good. Comedy. Yeah, what else? A villain. A villain. So what I'm hearing is that we really like in our stories to have characters that draw us in, right? We like having the good guy, the bad guy, all of these different things. What else? Yes. The witch? Robots. You like when there's robots in a story. Interesting. When robots take over the world or when they serve humanity? Interesting. That's a philosophical question we could actually get into. (laughs) Who's really in control? Next. What else? Yes. A twist or a surprise. Interesting. Yeah. A moral, a lesson. Yes. Yes, Sonia. Seeing new worlds. Yes. Being invited. I'm reading a fantasy book right now that I read in high school, and I found it at one of those uh, bookstores that have, like, they're really stacked from floor to ceiling. There's this one actually over in the, in the mall on Speedvale. There's a Freshco in the plaza, and there's a bookstore. If you've ever been in there, just go in there for an adventure. Because you walk in, I tell you, I have no idea how that guy knows where any of the books are. But I found this one I read in high school, and I've been reading through it. It's called Sailing to Serantium by a guy named Guy Gavriel K. Anyone else? Okay, so a few weeks ago, as I was preparing for this, I looked online, compared multiple websites, websites we can trust, to see what makes a really, really good, compelling story. So these are the various things that I found. Number one, and this is on your sermon notes if you're filling in the blanks. Number one, what makes a story very, very compelling is if there's a really, really good theme. So something very important that the story invites us or tries to tell us. So some of us can probably think of our favorite stories and we think of, oh, the theme in my favorite story is this. The second thing we want to see in a good story is the plot. This is the conflict or struggle that the main characters go through as well as the resolution. This is when things are, you're invited in in the beginning and then things get maybe bad and then suddenly there's a way to solve it. So we like happy endings. 
Another thing that makes a story good is the structure. This is how the story is told. You can tell if a story is told really well, and you can probably tell if a story was really, really poorly told. So we have the structure. We then have characters. This is the people in the story, the protagonists and the antagonists. These are the people that you say, what's your favorite character in this book? Or what's your favorite character in this story? You go, my favorite character is this person. And there's actually a thing that you can do with the Lord of the Rings story that you can go online, you fill out a quiz, and you can actually figure out which character you're most alike which is very, very strange. If you're really nerdy into Lord of the Rings, I'm sure you've already done it. So that's something that you could do with Lord of the Rings. Then there's the setting. So where the story takes place. So Sonia was saying, you're invited into different worlds. You're invited into, uh, might be a fictional or a fake reality. It could be a real place that you actually know about. And then there's also the style and the tone, or it's the language of the story. Now, as I alluded to earlier, we have Shakespeare, and he writes in a language that is not the language that we use nowadays. So oftentimes when I'm reading Shakespeare, I got to read it a couple of times. So I'm like, what's he trying to tell me? And so all of us know this. And we generally go towards stories that match the language that we understand. Now, this summer, we've been going through the story of Esther. And as you go through the story of Esther, I'm sure you can find each of these things within it. Right? We, we have the themes. We have uh, the theme at the end of the book that God is redeeming and saving his people regardless of where they have been found. We have a plot of a really, really powerful king who thinks he's the greatest human being to have ever lived. We then have the structure, which is at the beginning, we have these parties, which then goes into other parts of the story. We then have characters. We have Mordecai and Esther. We then have the setting, which is in Persia and Susa, and we have a style and a tone, which is much of the language of the scriptures. Now, I can only tell it in my own way, and what we're going to do now is watch a video that's done by the Bible Project, and you can go on YouTube, and you can spend all afternoon watching the Bible Project animated videos, because what they've done is they've created animated videos for every single book of the Bible that tells us about the scriptures and tells us about specific books. So pay attention to the screen as we get invited into the story of Esther told in a very, very unique way. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now, this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once, which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquets feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. 
she refuses. And so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember for Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish... Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. 
It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that, first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now, the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder of which Mordecai and Esther are a part, not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah, like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story is not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral example, as if it endorses all of their behavior, but they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we begin, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says, no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working. And to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. 
And that's what the book of Esther is all about. The book. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And as I said, uh, they now have uh, books of and videos for almost almost the majority of the scriptures and so they even have ones made for the themes of the bible and so i'd really really encourage you to go check it out especially if there's a book that you're like wow i've never really that's an odd one to me because let's be honest there are some odd stuff odd things in the bible i heard someone say once like take for example there's a talking snake in like page three like what do we make of that and so go check these things out on youtube and watch uh in amazement at what these people have created and being used in the kingdom of God. Now, one thing we oftentimes forget about the story like Esther is that the Esther story falls into the larger story of the Bible. Now, some of us in this room have maybe read the Bible front to back before. Uh, A commitment that I made a number of years ago is that I would read the Bible in a year every single year, and so I follow a Bible reading plan. Some of you have maybe read bits and pieces. Others of you have maybe not really read anything at all. Now, the Bible, and why so many people, I think, have such a hard time reading it is because they don't know where to start, or they don't really know what the grand story of the Scriptures is. So this morning, I want to tell you what the grand story of the Scriptures is, and so that as you enter into the Bible, that you can actually begin to read it and have a little bit of an understanding, a little bit about the context of what this is. But the first point that we need to make is that the Bible is really one large story. Did you know that? Like as you have your Bible, I'm sure many of us in this room have one. If you don't have a Bible, the ones that we have at the back that Sonia has there, if you don't have one, you can take this Bible home as our gift to you. But the Bible is really one large story and it follows the structure of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now to break this down a little bit, in the early pages of the scriptures, we have God beginning everything. God creating. The word create is literally to create something out of nothing. And he creates. And he creates this beautiful world. He, he, he creates order out of chaos. And he creates humanity. And he invites them to be part of the story with him. He invites them to live in perfect relationship with him. He invites them to walk in the garden. And he gives them a couple of things that he says, I don't want you to do this though. I don't want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat of it, you'll become like me. Or at least Satan tries to convince them of that. So they're living in this garden, in this paradise, in this utopia. And in comes Satan. And so Satan tempts Eve first and then Adam and says, if you eat of this, you will become like God. But remember, they were already created in the image of God. They already were like God. But doesn't that, isn't that what sin does to you and to me in its tempting ways? Sin tries to make us believe that God isn't enough, that we need more than him. And so in enter sin, brokenness, rebellion, And so everything in the world, in the Christian perspective, that is evil and messed up and broken is a result of this decision to walk away from God and to walk in light of what humanity thought it needed when it really didn't need it in the beginning. 
And then we have the rest of the scriptures of the Old Testament in which we see God's people continually turning their attention away from him. And then God, rather than saying, listen, you disobeyed me, I'm going to step away from you forever, does the exact opposite. And it's why we believe at Church of the City that it's so important for us to image God in going after broken, messed up people and that God came himself in the person of Jesus to redeem a broken world. And so rather than God taking off, God pursues us. And this is the part of redemption. And Jesus comes and he lives a life and he shows us what it means to truly have life. He shows us what it truly means to live in a broken world, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of his life, he gives himself over to the Romans who kill him. So that you and I could come into perfect relationship with God. That our sins could be taken care of. And death couldn't hold him because three days later he came back to life. And then we read about how he instructs his disciples on how to live in this world. He talks about the kingdom of God. And he then tells of a day when he will actually return and will restore and bring justice against everything in the world that is broken, that is messed up, and where justice is needed. And so the scriptures, as they unfold, much of the Old Testament can be found in the fall, leading to the redemption that is the beginning of the New Testament that we find in the Gospels. And then between the Gospels and restoration is the remaining part of the scriptures. And you and I find ourselves in the period of redemption awaiting the final restoration. This is what the scriptures is all about. And so what we find here is that the Bible is really one story that points to the greatest hero of all, and that is Jesus. The Bible is one long, continuous story with a plot, with a structure, with a style and a tone that points us to Jesus. And so this is why, as we've been teaching the story of Esther And as we study other books of the Bible, the crux of all of our messages always points back to what does this tell us about what Christ has done for us on the cross and what he's accomplished for us in the world. The Bible was not primarily written so that you and I could walk away with a way to live our lives or a simple instruction manual. Instead, it tells us that we will never be able to live up to the instruction manual. And because of that, we need a Savior who could save us and by his grace give us eternal life so that we can be on the right side of the final restoration. Isn't that amazing? And so as you open up the pages of Esther, where you're finding yourself is in that period of fallen brokenness. You're finding yourself in a period of when the Israelites were not following after God and God warned them through the prophets and said, you will go into exile. And they're living in a period of exile. Most of the Israelites had returned, but some remained in Susa and in Persia. And so as you can see from the animated view, what this story does is it shows us that God is relentlessly pursuing his people even when he seems absent. God relentlessly pursues his people even when he seems absent. Now, some of you in this room today are 
finding yourselves in a period of life where God seems absent. You might be going through relational breakdown. You might be going through a time in, vo- in your vocation or in the thing that you're called to do in your work where it's really dry, where it's difficult. You're maybe a stay-at-home mom and your kids are really driving you nuts. You're living at a time in which the world that we live in, when things are more broken than maybe it has ever seen before, where you turn on the TV or you are on social media and people are just having fights about, it would seem, everything, in which we're lifting up world leaders and saying they can save us, at a time when people are, rather than trusting those who are in authority, are actually trying to take matters into their own hands, ultimately creating more dissension. The Bible, the large story of the scriptures, speaks directly to us in this. It tells us that the things that we experience and we watch do not have the final word. It tells us that we are awaiting a day when Christ will return. We are waiting for a day when all the tears that we have experienced will be taken away. When there will be no more fear and there will be no more pain. So the Bible is so great because it invites us into the story because we're part of the story. And don't you love stories that you feel like you're a part of? I remember... um, when Andrea and I first started dating, if someone had given me a manuscript of her life, I would have taken it. Because for me, it would have allowed me to get to know her a lot quicker. Because I wanted to woo her. Right? What the scriptures have done, and why the scriptures are such a gift, is it gives us a manuscript. It gives us a taste of who God is. I heard someone say once that a lot of people say, I experience God in nature. Yes, you can experience God in nature, but you will not get to know God personally in nature. The ways that we get to know God is through reading his word, through studying what he has done and what he is up to in our world. We get a bit of a reference point for what do we do about this or what do we do about that? Ultimately realizing that our efforts, they might fail. And you and I know this, that there's pain and that there's toil in this world. But Christians should ultimately be the most hopeful because we realize that the things that tear us down, the things that we feel at times are the absence of God, actually allow us to point more to him and bring out a deeper need than ever before that we need our Savior. We need something greater than ourselves. And the Bible invites us into it. It's the greatest story ever told. It truly is. A few weeks ago, uh, we took uh, 46 kids away from Guelph to Camp Wajidawin. And the theme of the week was Disney, Frozen to Neverland. And so what I did each night as I spoke to the kids, as I talked about a different Disney film, I talked about Finding Nemo, I talked about Inside Out, I talked about Frozen, I talked about Star Wars, The Force Awakens. I talked about each of these stories and how ultimately each of these stories, if we'd open our eyes, ultimately point to Jesus. And all of them ultimately find their plot in the very similar storyline of the scriptures of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. 
We talked about with the book, the, the movie Finding Nemo and that story, that there is a father that is pursuing his child because his child has disobeyed the father. We talked about the story of the prodigal son and how God is relentlessly pursuing and how that father relentlessly pursued his son when his son returned. And then he also how the father relentlessly pursues the son that thinks he doesn't need the father. See, all stories find their story in the grand story, which is the story of the scriptures. On our website, we have a tab. If you go to the bottom of the website, it's called Reading Plans. And you can click on that, and what will pop up is a beginner's reading plan, and then also a Bible in the year link. If you want to begin to jump into the story, I'd, I'd recommend the getting started. It kind of follows this creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And then if you want to be really, let's go get it, jump into the Bible in a year reading plan. I heard someone say once, if I were to send you a letter, and you were to take that letter, and you were to only focus on one line near the end of the letter, or one little word that's like in the final paragraph, or even in the first paragraph, you'd probably miss out on what was going on, right? You'd miss what I was trying to tell you. And the scriptures are much the same way. Because if we only read the Gospels, yes, we'll know about Jesus' life, but we'll forget about everything that happened that ultimately led to pointing to the need for him. And if we forget everything past it, we'll forget what we need to really center ourselves on, which is Christ and what he's done and how he empowers us to live in light of the fact that he has come, that he has died, that he has come back to life. I'm so excited that we are in a church where we get to teach the Bible, where the Bible matters to us, and where we can ultimately find ourselves in the great story that points to the one person that we believe that everybody in the world needs to get to know and that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have had to come together. I thank you, God, that we live in a country where many of us feel afraid, but many of us, Lord, need to realize that we still have the freedom to do this today. We still have the freedom to sing to you. We still have the freedom to open up our Bibles. We have the freedom to talk to others in our country about you. We think of the country of Russia right now where the Christians have been told that they need to keep their religion in their churches. God, we pray that you would raise up believers. God, bold believers that would not follow this but would instead find ways to share the gospel with their friends and with their neighbors. God, I pray for the boldness that you would give to us that, Lord, we would be able to regularly refer back to the great story. And God, that you would allow us to be part of this story I thank you that we are found in it, and I pray, Lord, that we would recognize the opportunity that we have as being part of it, to glorify your name, to point to you, Jesus, and to make you famous in Guelph as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.